tonight, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. And on my heart tonight is this, the theology of Christmas. I want to talk about the theology of Christmas. Kind of was thinking this morning that theology is simply this, it's the study of God. I believe that everybody has theology, even somebody who's an agnostic or an atheist, because they have a belief system about God. And that's what theology is. Theology is the study of God. But when you're a Christian and you study God, my thought was theology turns into doxology. Doxology is just a fancy word for praise. How many understand that the deeper you get into the theology and understanding God, the more it brings praise in and out of your life? Does anybody share that with me? The the more I understand about God's nature, the more I understand about who he is, it actually helps me become more of a praiser and more of a worshiper and somebody who actually wants to give more of my life to God, not less of my life to God. So tonight we're going to talk about the theology of Christmas and what is true theology about the person of Jesus and his birth. So look at John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known to us. Father, for these next few minutes, I just pray that you would help me, that you would anoint my words, that as we study you, it wouldn't be dry and boring, but it would actually create a praise inside of us. Help us focus in tonight on the true theology of Christmas, not, Lord, necessarily the the stories and the things we celebrate in a Western society, but help us get down to the true root of who you are and why you came. We love you tonight, Lord, and we give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I did hear it say say once, somebody said that everybody is a theologian, that everybody has a theology, everybody has, uh, whether you're a church elder or whether you're a pastor or whether you're all the way somebody that's removed from a belief system in God, Everybody has a view on God. And really, there's a Western society theology that kind of creeps into our belief system about Christmas and our theology about Christmas. And I'm not being a Grinch tonight. I mean, I came out in antlers with little bells on them just a little bit ago. You guys know me. I love the Christmas season. I'm not a Grinch. And many of my memories growing up were, you know, toys and spending time at grandma's we'd always go to my grandma's on christmas eve she would have just a wonderful spread of food a turkey and gravy and homemade bread she was really well known in our family for making these wonderful rolls at that time of year and just had a great time and i love all the all the things that go around christmas 
and I'm not being a Grinch, but really none of the things we celebrate in Western society have anything to do with the theology of Christmas. Are you following me? So this morning as I was praying and just reading through the Word, I've been reading Luke 2 um, the last several days, but I, instead of going into the story, and I will probably more on Sunday, but instead of going into just all the story, because John, he begins his gospel much differently than the other three writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of going into the story of the hows and the watts and the angels and the stars and the manger and the genealogy and all these different things. What John lays out here in John 1 in these first 18 verses is the theology of Christmas. And again, theology should create doxology in our lives. In other words, when you get deep into really truly understanding why Christ came and what he did upon the cross, it creates a praise in our lives. So the deeper you go in God, the more praise it generates. But I had some of the greatest memories growing up. But the biblical theology of Christmas is something I want to talk about tonight. I just want to teach for a little bit. Is that okay if I just teach? And we look verse by verse in John 1 and just look at the theology of Christmas and how important it is. Um, Not the Western theology, but actually biblical theology of Christmas. Because if all you know of Christmas is the trees and the presents and the things, if all you know of Christmas is that Ralph wanted a Red Ryder BB gun, with a compass, come on, like this right here. I'm not going to shoot anybody tonight. I do have an illustration at the end for you, and that's why we have the ladder up here, actually, is to give just a small illustration. But what transformative effect does the theology of Christmas have on your life? Because when you dig into the theology of Christmas, it should transform you, have a transformative effect. Effect. So as we come to the first chapter of John and the first 18 verses, they're really a prologue or a introductory thoughts of John's theology of Christmas. And he gives us this thesis, that Jesus came in human flesh. Think about that for a minute. The creator of the universe, the God who literally created everything around, came in human flesh. And the rest of the book, of course, in John talks and gets into detail about all the things that he, not all the things, but he opened blinded eyes. He raised the dead. All the things that he did in a natural way and supernatural way as he lived on the earth. So it leads me to my first thing tonight. But the incarnation of Jesus, everybody say incarnation. Because theologically, that really is the main point of the Christmas story, is that God came and dwelt among the people. That, that really is one of the main points, but the incarnation of Jesus reveals his glory. Everybody say glory. glory. In verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. Do you realize that is one of the most important statements in the entire Bible? If the word had not become flesh, Christianity would not be Christianity. It wouldn't. In other religions, here's the thing. If God had not come down and become flesh, as John starts his his gospel off with, what other religions, I told him yesterday, we were up here decorating, and uh, actually it was Walt that was sitting up here, and I said, I'm going to use some of these as props tomorrow. I don't know how or why, how it's going to work, but I told him to leave the ladder out because I'm going to use it. So, Walt, here I go, buddy. Religion 
is man's attempt, and that's really what the law was. The law in the Old Testament was our attempt to try to become right with God. Are you following me? We'll get into that more in detail in just a second. But really what man's attempt is, is trying to climb the ladder to God. And this is the difference of Christianity. If you're here tonight and you may be here and say, I'm not too sure about the whole Christian thing, not too sure about what it means, not really too sure about what Christmas really means. What Christmas means is that our attempt to get to God and climb that that religious ladder, it doesn't work. What God did was come down, amen, and show us who God was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God. And the incarnation is God coming down so that we could understand who God is. Amen? It's very important, the incarnation. So why is he called the Word? In verse 1 it says, in the beginning was the Word. Everybody say Word. word. The Word did not, according to John, have a beginning. The Word that became flesh always existed with the Father. He is not subject to the laws of time. He is not subject in those ways that we are. He is eternal. And it says, and the Word was with God. So the Word was in the beginning alongside the Father. They had perfect intimacy. They had perfect communion. They had a perfect relationship with the Father. Yet it says, and the Word was God. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God which is basically a theological way of wrapping up that Jesus isn't just a man that came down to save us. He is God 100%. We oftentimes, and I'll say this pretty often when I teach and preach, is that there's the, there's God, Jesus was just as much God as if he wasn't man and was just as much man as he wasn't God. That is not a 50-50 proposition. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. If he didn't come in the incarnation in that way, then we couldn't have been saved. Are you following me? And it's amazing to stop and think about that God really came down in human flesh. And he says right here, and the word was God. Can I tell you, it's hard to wrap our minds around this. It really is. Because John here in his gospel is borrowing a word that would have been very familiar to the Greek people at the time because they used the word logos. That's what he he referred to as the word logos. And referring that, they would have had a very, very uh, immediate understanding that logos was their idea that there is an omnipotent power, there is something out there that, that is God, but you could never know him. But when he says the logos became flesh, it would have blown their mind as Greek thinking people, that God could actually come down and become a person who we could understand. It would have been completely revolutionary what he's right. In other words, you do not have an impersonal God that most people believe is somewhere out there. You have a God that will get down in the mess and all the stuff of your life. That's the theology of Christmas. It says the word became flesh. And this would have been absolutely stunning Jesus is completely and totally human, and he had all the limitations and weaknesses. Do you know what got me thinking about this? I mentioned that I've been reading Luke 2. And as I was reading Luke 2, it gives the whole Christmas story, and then it goes into, you know, on the eighth day, they did the Jewish custom. They took him to get circumcised. They basically dedicated him. They went and offered the two, you know, turtle doves. They, did, they, they were following their custom as Jews when they did all the things that they did. 
But I went on to keep reading, and, and at the end of each of those sections, it said that Jesus grew both in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man. What the incarnation simply means is that he was fully human to the point where, think about this, the one that inspired the whole entire New Testament because he is the word made flesh, he was with God, he is God, actually learned the Old Testament that he inspired. Think about that for a second. Wow. He was, he was human so he could fall asleep on a boat out of exhaustion but yet get up and speak to wind and waves and it completely stops. He was human so he could weep in genuine heartfelt agony for his friend Lazarus who had died and yet the next moment he speaks a word and his dead lifeless body comes to life. He is fully human so he could be laid in a grave and his body could become lifeless and three days later he could rise again. The incarnation means he is fully God and he's fully man. And what John is talking about here is the word was made flesh. And then it says this. It says that he came and tabernacled among us. What does that mean? Does anybody start quoting Christmas movies this, this time of year and it just makes you think of the rest of the Christmas movie, right? I don't want to get carnal or fleshly on you tonight, but when somebody throws out a Christmas vacation quote, I can quote the rest of what they're saying. I really can. Other Christmas movies, especially Christmas time, Elf, somebody will throw out an Elf line and I can finish the rest of it. We have a tradition in our house where we watch that movie at Christmas time. When somebody says something that's familiar, it automatically takes you back to something that's familiar to you. That's what John is doing here. When he says that the word of God was made flesh and tabernacled, or basically what Jesus did is God with flesh on, right? God, Jesus with skin on. And when it talks about him tabernacled, they immediately, they immediately would have hearkened back to the Old Testament where God had in the, in the wilderness, he had a tent of meeting, right? Then later on, he had the tabernacle, the temple that God's glory would fall upon. It automatically took his readers back to say, wow, wait a second. That which we knew of in the Old Testament actually came and dwelt his glory, his goodness. And we all have an understanding of of how awesome and majestic and holy God is. He's unapproachable. It says if anybody even looks at him, you'll die, right? I've spent time in L.A. ministering and took a mission team there for just a couple weeks, 10, 10 days, something like that. And uh, we had a day where we could get in a van with the team, and we were free to just go and sightsee, right? So we had a van that we had rented, so I was driving. I was, I was the one that rented the van, so I'm driving all around Los Angeles, you know, on those crazy highways and freeways. We found ourselves over in Beverly Hills, and we stopped and we bought a map of Star's Homes that we could self-drive and go look at Star's Homes. The amazing thing about it is they're all gated, right? They're all shut off. I saw Brad Pitt's home, but I did not see Brad Pitt. I didn't see him anywhere. Or let me give you an example maybe you've experienced. Have you ever been on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C.? I've been there, beautiful, the White House. Nobody invited me in. I didn't get to see the president. Can I tell you something that just the theology of Christmas 
is that God, who is, it dwells in inexpressible and unapproachable light, who we can barely fathom in our finite minds, came and made himself accessible to us. That's what tabernacle means. That's the theology of Christmas, is he became incarnate. He became God literally in the flesh. And he came in such a way, amazing. I was watching a little video. I'm going to show it next Wednesday. I was watching a little video just thinking about how he came in a lowly manger. Came to people, and it was announced to people that everybody else looked down on him. You want to get excited about something. If you want your theology to turn into doxology this Christmas, if you want your theology of Christmas to turn into praise, just for the between now and Christmas Day, begin to focus on and begin to meditate on the fact that God came down when we couldn't get to him. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it says he dwelt among us. We know what that means as humans. It means he walks. He walked into a broken, sin-cursed world and lived with us. He left a perfect heaven and dwelled among us. Think about the incredible love for us that he would experience our world with all its horror and all its suffering. Amen? The tabernacle, again, was a picture of God's presence. It was a tent of meeting. God dwelled among us, but why? He did it to show us something. Again, as I started out, he came to reveal his glory. Everybody say glory. It goes on to say, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. What is glory? When I think of glory, I think of something really special, something unique, something set apart. Even the Bible, the word kabod there literally means like a a weightiness to it or a set-apartedness to it or something really special, obviously. It's something radiant. In other words, there's nothing like it. And his glory was witnessed by many through his signs and wonders and all the things that he did. But his glory doesn't mean he walked around shining with a halo around his head. Listen to me. The glory that John is referring to here is the glory that was revealed in the character of God in Jesus when he came. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Here it is. It says this in verse 14, full of grace and truth. We're not so familiar with that term, but it's used all throughout the Bible. And it actually finds its root in the Old Testament in Exodus Exodus 33 and 34. Moses comes to God and he begs God this. He said, God, show me your glory. And God, of course, says, look, nobody can look upon me, so I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, right? And I'll let everything pass by. And listen, listen to what he said after God passed by. This is what, after seeing God's glory, after seeing who God was, this is Moses' verbal response from seeing God's glory. This is what John is talking about is he gives us the theology of Christmas, not the angels and not the not the manger and not the virgin birth and all those wonderful things that we'll talk about on Sunday. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, happens over and over again in the Old Testament. You'll see it many times. But you know how it's translated in the Greek New Testament? Grace and truth. God's goodness and glory are supremely manifested in his grace and truth. What John is saying 
is that what Moses was allowed to hear about God, we have seen it in Jesus Christ because God became incarnate. He came and dwelt and tabernacled among us. Church, every verse, if you look at it, in the Old Testament all the way through the New, it leads us to the cross. The incarnation is the doorway into the cross when Jesus gave his life. Amen? Number two, the incarnation of Jesus demonstrates his incomparable supremacy. There's no one like him. It demonstrates that he is supreme. It demonstrates of how awesome he is. We know, and he puts it in parentheses in my passage that I pulled out to use for tonight, of talking about John being the one that prepared the way of the Lord. Can I say as a side note, God is always preparing something that is coming in your future. Amen? If God has a blessing for you, can I tell you, he's working on it even now. Because John was, Elizabeth was, was with John six months before Jesus as the cousin ever came on the scene. God is always working things out for you. He's always going before you, and I love that about him. But John the Baptist, he's already been mentioned in verse 6. He was sent to bear witness about the light. So here's his message. He says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now think about that, the incarnation. He says, wait a second, because in Jewish culture, and we understand that the firstborn would have taken preeminence. In other words, just an understanding of their culture, if you were born before somebody else, then you outrank them, right? And John is stepping back and saying, wait a second, I want to put this in proper light. I am not even worthy to do the menial thing of untying his sandal. When he comes on the scene, the Christ, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Not only that, he outranks me because guess what, y'all? He was way, way before me. When everything was spoken into existence, guess who was there? Jesus, who was born in a little tiny manger. That's the theology of Christmas. It's amazing. But John continually says, no, he came after me, but he was before me because John understood who Jesus actually was. Listen to me tonight. Jesus didn't begin as a baby in Bethlehem, right? It's not where he found his beginning. Jesus had no beginning. He's showing everyone that Jesus isn't only a carpenter's son. He's the God who created every molecule, every star, and every planet. So what I'm talking about is our theology is also tied into seeing the supremacy of Christ. Look at verse 16. From from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Is anybody thankful for grace tonight? Now listen, as I've studied this before, and there's something so unusual here, the way that the wordage and the verbiage, and I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch, but literally it, it says grace upon grace, and the upon there is actually saying, in the, in the verbiage, it's saying grace replacing grace. I've I've often pondered exactly what that meant because he goes on in the next verse and he says that the law was given here, but we have been given grace replacing grace in Jesus Christ. So why is it the supremacy of Christ as he was incarnate and he came to earth? It's an understanding of what I was talking about earlier that there is a grace in the Old Testament in the law. The grace that's in the Old Testament in the law is as we know, as we study the law, it is pointing to the fact that we can never live up to it. Is everybody following me? It's pointing to the fact that now we have what we call 
saving grace. Is anybody thankful for saving grace? It's grace replacing grace. He came to reveal that we couldn't make it, so he came as God-man and walked a perfect path, completely sinless and spotless Lamb of God that went to the cross. Amen? There's actually many kinds of graces that are brought out in the Bible, but here's four that I thought of. There's common grace. Everybody say common. Common grace is the fact that the Bible says it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. That's... That's common grace. God is a gracious God. He is. I don't know if you know that about him tonight, but he's very gracious. What's another common grace that I thought of? When I go to the dentist and have to have dental work, there's something called Novocaine, y'all. That's a common grace. A completely ranked center can benefit from Novocaine, and so can we. How many ladies uh, are appreciative of spinal taps? Come on, somebody. Yes, common grace. There's common graces that we all share, listen, because we serve a gracious God. But that's not saving grace. There's also sustaining grace. How many have been sustained by grace in seasons of your life where you just said, so it's grace upon grace. It's grace replacing grace. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ came to fulfill everything of the law incarnate, God-man, and he came to fulfill those things and walk it out. So what does that do in us? It creates praise, right? Your theology should create a doxology in your life. Doxology is just a fancy word for praising him. When you really understand and you see him more as just a little baby in a manger, he is fully God. He was there at the beginning. He was with the Father. He was pre-existent. He was there when everything was made. And it says he's not the Father, but he was there with the Father. In such a close unity that we understand as you read all the words in there, literally somebody that's so close, there's no difference in them. Are you tracking me? There's none. Came to earth and we beheld his glory. His glory is just his character. His glory is just when we begin to understand of, of, of like Moses when he saw him pass by, and said, wow, God, you are gracious and loving kind, and you are awesome. So there's the saving grace, sustaining grace, and there's also successful grace. How many understand the success that we have in life comes from the fact that it is grace upon grace in your life? That's the theology of Christmas. You're successful in something? Can I tell you tonight? It's not so much you, it's God's grace upon your life. When the angel showed up and talked to Mary, he told her, you're, you're highly favored. Wasn't because of anything that she did. Do you understand the reason she was highly favored was because who she was getting married to. So it was a covenant. Can I tell you? The blood is why you're favored tonight. If you don't believe that, if you're saved, it's the covenant of the blood is the reason you can drive to work in the morning and not complain about the traffic on 19. But you can begin to say, this is going to be a great day of favor in my life. And if it doesn't show up that day, proclaim it the next day. Because there is successful grace that grace upon grace that shows up in our life and there's sustaining grace and there's saving grace and it's all grace upon grace. That's the theology of Christmas. That's John's theology here. Can I tell you what the best grace is? Saving grace. What's saving grace? God's, when God sees you in your sin and you've rebelled against him, you've willfully just drowning in the, what the prodigal sons talks about of just the filth of all the world and all the sin. Yet he still looks at you and reaches out a hand. God, I'm so thankful this Christmas for saving grace. The goal of theology is doxology. 
verses 16 and 17. And that's the thing John's trying to get across here, is grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you might say that the law of Christ, grace and truth, replaces the law of Moses in this instance. So obeying the law or keeping the rules was never intended to grant us the forgiveness and grace. Amen? The old covenant was a grace as a believer looked forward to the great God's promises. But now, the incarnation, Messiah is here. The one who came to save them. Can I tell you tonight, Jesus' grace is fully available to everybody. It's extended to all of us. It's available to you. But here's the thing. If you never get the true theology of Christmas... Sometimes we can just get caught up in the trees and the presents and the turkeys and the stuff, the family getting together. There's some family members you only see at Christmas. Some of you are happy that you only see them once a year. I guarantee you are. That's good with you. And all the things that we get caught up in right here, we forget to allow our theology of understanding of just how incredible it was that our God would actually come down here in all the mess and freely make grace available to us. Look at verse 18 as we finish up tonight. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one has ever seen God. And again, to actually see the visible God. When prophets in the Old Testament would, would be caught up into heaven, they, they, John, when he was caught up in the book of Revelation, he throws himself down at an angel's feet because it's just so overwhelming and so glorious and so incredible. They throw themselves down. Isaiah fell to the ground in his heavenly vision, and John, of course, in Revelation. And what it's talking about here is that God in the fle- God came from heaven and literally, they're so close, and there's no, in the Trinity, there's nothing separating them. It's literally like a heartbeat. But Jesus is the innate word of God. And what it's simply saying here at Christmas time, that theology creates praise. Jesus said this. He said, if you want to know who God is, look at me. If you want to know what God thinks about something, look at me. If you want to know, we've been having conversations in our LCU Bible class just before we start into our class about the Jewish thought that when somebody followed a particular teacher, you began to dress like them. Your tone of your voice took on the tone of their voice. Literally, if they were to see you, sometimes they made a mistake and thought it was the main rabbi teacher. Because do you understand as Christians, as we follow him, we become more like him? At least we're supposed to. We're supposed to begin to act like Jesus. We're supposed to begin to talk like Jesus. We're supposed to begin to think like Jesus. Amen? But Jesus simply said, I came to make the Father known. That's what the incarnation is. It's we couldn't get to God. So God came and down in all the mess. He came and literally suffered things. He, he had heartbreak at people dying. He had, you know, you look through the scriptures and you understand when John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus withdrew to a lonely place and prayed it out. He was heartbroken. Lazarus, his friend, he, he wept. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. He fell asleep in the bottom of a boat, as I talked about Sunday, that was being rocked back and forth in light. I mean, it wasn't a normal storm. It was an earthquake storm, whatever that is. He fell asleep. 
He came here for you and I. Let me ask you a question as I close tonight. How many believe that I could set this balloon over here? It's not going to stay. Yes, it is. Thank you. I won't shoot you. How many believe that I could shoot that on my first try? Raise your hand. Okay. You guys have a lot of faith in me. Keep your hand up. Okay. Now, how many, how many believe that I could shoot that if I gave it to Walt and had him stand up here like this? It's, it's, it's shrinking. It's shrinking. It is. How many believe, you just said it, how many believe that I could shoot that? I want you to raise your hand if he held it in his teeth. Really? You just want to see me do it. That's what it is. You just want to see me do that to poor Walt because I'd probably admit, listen to me, listen to me. You believe it? Do you believe I could do that? That was a question. Oh, you could do it. Oh, come on now. We're not going to be taking my place. When the theology of Christmas gets truly into your life, it, cha- it, it should change everything about you. It should be the type of person that literally grabs this truth at its very core, and your belief is more than just, yeah, I think that could happen to being somebody that could have the balloon in your teeth because you believe it so deeply that you begin to become the person that lives it out every single day, that squashes and gets rid of sin in your life every single day because you truly believe the theology of Christmas because the theology of Christmas and the story of Christmas should be something that takes up residence just like God came to earth as fully man and fully God and lived a sinless life and died upon the cross for us. When we get this theology down deep in our heart, it changes the way that you live. It changes everything about you. It, 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 you're the type of person that says, man, I, can, I believe God can do anything. Everybody in here thought I could shoot the balloon from 10 feet away. Two of you all thought I could shoot it from somebody's teeth. I was going to be all the way on the other side of the room. That's in my office because birds come and peck on our windows. And Charlie Simmons brought me that to chase them away. That's all I need is a chronicle to be driving by when I'm out there shooting it at these, these ravens that are tearing up our church. That's all I need. That's all I need. And I've done it. Man, I've done it. I've been out there just running around. Yes, we've got a man running around Christian Church. Church parking lot with a weapon. Let's call the church parking lot. You guys would bail me. I believe that. We take up a special offering out here in the church. Bail me out. When you really, truly get the Christmas story in your life and in your heart, it changes everything. Can I tell you why? Because it's true. He really did it. Don't let 2,000 years of tradition erase the wonder and the amazement and the praise that we can give to God of the fact that this little baby in a manger was God himself from heaven. Perfection. 
worship 24-7, lightnings and thunders, and everybody worshiping him and came down here and walked this out. When that gets into your heart, you become the kind of person that takes, takes it by, its, by your teeth. And again, you begin to look at things in your life. You begin to look at even sin issues in your life. And can I tell you, sin's like a little acorn, right? If, it, if, it, if it's broken up in your life, it grows and eventually becomes one tree. And if you've ever been in a field of acorns, it becomes another tree and another tree and another tree. Understanding Christmas will cause you to be so grateful for what God did. You don't want anything disobedient in your life. You don't. It becomes, listen, it becomes so real in your life, so real, that you can't help but go tell everybody else about this God who came to earth. Can I, come on somebody. Because the manger, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus through a virgin of the tribe of David as the lineage all lays out, he was sent for one purpose. It was the doorway into the cross all those years later where he saved. Could you stand up tonight with me as we pray? When you really get it, then you begin to live your life for his glory. When you see his glory, as John talked about, is the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace of truth. When that get, finds its way into your heart, when it finds its way into your life, it changes everything. Bow your head and close your eyes. I want to ask this simple question. I pretty much know everybody here, but there's some I perhaps don't. I just want to ask this question. Have you experienced his saving grace? I'm not talking about the Jesus that you could look up a Wikipedia page and know facts about. I'm talking about have you experienced his transforming life-giving grace in your life and in your heart. If you haven't, can I just tell you as a messenger of his, somebody who has experienced that forgiveness, experienced the joy that comes, that is joy unspeakable and full of glory because the baby in a manger has now become the king of heaven that has taken up his residence in my heart and changed my life. If you say tonight, I just need that. I need that saving grace. I want to lay everything down before him. Would you just shoot your hand up tonight? Anybody? Amen. Let me, let me move on and deal with this then. You just say, God, fill me. Can we pray and just say, God, fill me with fresh wonder of Christmas. Fill me with, just lift your hands right there where you are. Let's not let this, let, let's not let the wonder, the, the incredible wonder of what he did ever. This is just the time of year that we, have penciled in, and I think it's a great time to reach culture because we're all on the same page for about a month. And I'm not talking about the Christmas songs and the movies. Those are, those are fun. I, I love it all. We're on the same page with culture of them having something in their mind of saying, who is this Christ? And can I tell you tonight, when you're filled with wonder, when you're filled with the grace and truth, that's going to spill over into everybody that you come across. So, Father, tonight we pray humbly and we pray honestly I pray for myself in this church that God you fill us with the theology of Christmas that the word that was made flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us God we're so thankful that you came 
We're so thankful that you lived a spotless life, sinless life. We're so thankful tonight that you gave your life willingly on the cross. God, fill us with the wonder that our God, who is in heaven, has come to earth to save us. Fill us with that wonder. And God, let it take deep root in our hearts so that we could squash and, and, and push out any ounce of sin and disobedience in our lives so that, Father, we could live lives of joy and live a life where we're constantly proclaiming how good you are. God, fill us with grace and fill us with truth tonight, Father. We give you all the honor, praise, and glory. God, I bless the people of God tonight as they go. I pray they would be blessed going in and blessed going out, that, God, your face truly would shine upon them. Turn your face towards them, and you would give them favor and peace. God, just like the favor that you declared over Mary because of covenant, God, I declare that tonight over the people of God. May they walk in favor and blessing in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Go in the name of the Lord and be blessed. You guys come up here and hug Audrey and meet uh, her boyfriend tonight.